by, shall we? Father, this morning as we uh, come to this passage, there is an awful lot that is contained in these words, some wonderful and amazing truths. The most glorious of which is that wonderful hope that is the possession of the person who puts their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. And that hope is that one day we will be with you forever and ever and ever in glorified and resurrected bodies. In the meantime, we put up with suffering and difficulty. We look at this passage together this morning. We pray that you help us to see those sufferings and difficulties in light of the glorious hope which is ours in Jesus Christ. Amen. Each week I uh, sit down in my office and I compile a list of people who are in needing who are needing prayer. Now that list consists of lots, lots of different people, but it mainly consists of people who are experiencing hardship or difficulty in their lives, especially at the present time. Can I say, in recent weeks, that list has grown longer and longer and longer to the point where it can almost fill several pages. Broken and failing bodies, broken and failing relationships, those experiencing loss, those facing challenges in the workplace, in the home, community. Each and every one of us is well acquainted with suffering, aren't we? The world and our lives are filled with so much suffering and so much hardship. If there was one person who definitely knew about suffering and hardship in his life, it was the Apostle Paul, the person who actually wrote this letter to the church in Rome. In fact, he gives a bit of a catalogue of his sufferings in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Let me just read you just a few verses from that letter. Paul writes, Five times I received at the hands of the Jews forty lashes less one. Basically right to the point of death. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. To the point where people thought he was actually dead. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea. On frequent journeys, I'm in danger from rivers, in danger from robbers, in danger from my own people, in danger from the Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the wilderness, in danger at sea and in danger from false brothers. On top of that, there is toil and hardship through many a sleepless night. Paul has hungered and thirsted, often going without food, experienced great cold and exposure. And apart from these things, there is also on him the daily pressure of his anxiety for all the churches, all those Christians who he has witnessed to and churches that he has planted. Paul knew incredible suffering. In prison, flogged with whips, beaten with rods, stoned, shipwrecked, lost at sea, starved, dying of thirst, homeless, imprisoned. 
In 2 Corinthians 12, Paul refers also to this thorn in the flesh that he experienced. A physical ailment that caused him so much discomfort and so much hardship that we pre-prayed earnestly to God to take it away. But instead God said, my grace is sufficient for you. This will be a reminder, Paul, of your dependence upon me. Paul knew suffering. Yet having experienced all that suffering in his life, he is able to say these words in Romans chapter 8, verse 18. He says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. That's an astounding statement, isn't it? That I consider that the sufferings of this present time... Think about it for the moment. Think about all that stuff I just mentioned about Paul and then I want you to think about it in your own context, your own suffering right now in your own lives. And it might not just be now, but it might be something that has been ongoing for maybe years... Perhaps right now you're in probably one of the darkest times of your life that you've ever faced. Whether it be physical hardship, whether it's to do with our failing bodies, our ailing bodies, whether it's to do with challenges. I don't know, kids, you've been back to school this week. Now, some of you face significant challenges at school from your peers. Bullying is a huge one, isn't it, in our schools today? You know what it's like to dread having to go to school. Some of you face a daily battle with ill health and that weighs, weighs you down and there are some days where you think I don't know if I can, if, how I'm going to get through today some of us just recently have faced incredible loss and you don't know what the future holds In fact, your life has just been basically just thrown up in the air and you don't know how it's all going to come down. For followers of Jesus, as Bill mentioned earlier, we live in a society today which is very hostile, openly hostile to to our faith. And yet Jesus calls us to witness to be salt and light to those people around us, to actually you know, boldly take a stand for Jesus and his ways. How do we do that? Because we know that there will be op- the opposition comes. Suffering and hardship. And yet Paul says... For I consider 
that the sufferings of this present time are not even worth comparing with, with the glory that is going to be revealed to us. In other words, Paul is saying, you know what, compared to, well, it doesn't even compare. These sufferings we're going through right now are going to actually fade in complete oblivion to the glory that is one day going to be revealed to us through Jesus Christ. That wonderful hope that we will one day step into the, the fullness of our salvation. Our, we'll be, have resurrected, glorified bodies with Jesus and we will live with him in his eternal glorious kingdom forever and ever and ever. Yay. Paul says, for I consider. In other words, Paul has given great thought to this, great consideration to this, and he has come to the conclusion, and it's been a, you know, it's been a, 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 a decision that he's made in his mind and in his heart and his will that the, this, the sufferings of this present time, they don't, they don't even compare, they have nothing Absolutely are going to fade completely away in light of that wonderful hope that is ours in Jesus Christ. Can you think about that? Can you think about that day when, when all of a sudden all of those pressures and all of those struggles and all of those difficulties and sufferings and hardships are going to all of a sudden just vanish and disappear? Hallelujah. That day is coming. That day is coming for those who love Jesus. See, Paul's eyes are fixed on something far more significant than any of the pain or any of the hardship that he has had to endure in his life, as, as severe and as difficult as they were. And that something was the future glory that God has promised for all of his children. It's our promised eternal inheritance in Christ. It's a new home, a new body, and a new existence that is perfect in every single way. And so as far as Paul is concerned, the troubles of this life are going to seem absolutely minuscule. The passage is one that is filled with such amazing hope, folks. Such incredible hope. And it's one that should be of tremendous encouragement and comfort to us as Jesus' followers, to us as people who groan, who currently groan in the midst of the many hardships and difficulties that we face in our lives, that this world throws at us. This passage helps us to reorient our minds and our hearts and it points us to the mercy and the grace of our wonderful God and his provision for us in such a great salvation. This morning we're going to look at under under four brief headings. The eager longing of the creation, the eager longing of the believer, the intercession of the Holy Spirit for us and the good purposes of God. As we do, I want us to see, I want us to help see or keep our minds focused on the fact that God here, through the Apostle Paul, is painting us a path, 
a pathway or a roadway, if you like, from groanings to glory. From groanings to glory. So let's look at it together. The first is this, the eager longing of the creation, verse 19 to 22. Paul mentions three things that groan in this passage. The first of which is creation. And of course, Paul is speaking here of the whole of creation, but specifically about the things of this earth. And I want to draw your attention first to verse 22, where it says this, For we know that the whole of creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. The whole of creation is groaning in, as in the pains of childbirth. Why is the creation groaning? Well, Paul answers it in verses 20 to 21, where he says, For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. The creation is groaning because it has been subjected, not willingly, not of its own accord, but but has been subjected to futility and frustration. In other words, what Paul is saying here is the creation itself is in an utter state of disarray. And we see that, don't we? We see it today in things like the natural disasters that happen in our world today, earthquakes and floods and fires and things like that. Creation is breaking down and has lost its original purpose for that which God originally created. It has been prevented from being what it was originally created to be. Of course, this occurred back in Genesis chapter 3, where we see man's sin in the garden. And we, in verses 17 to 19 of Genesis 3, we read that when man sinned against God, when man rebelled against God, God pronounced his judgment upon mankind, but also upon the creation. And he said, from that point on, you know, the ground itself will be cursed and will produce thorns and fish, uh, thorns and thistles. That's a bit of a tongue twister there. In other words, God says that because of the sin of mankind, creation itself has been impacted and influenced by it to the point that it is in decay. And from that point on, suffering has been a part of the natural order of things. But although it was subjected to this by God, God said that's not the end of the story because we read that it was subjected to futility in the hope that it would one day be freed from this bondage to corruption and decay. We see that in verse 21. And that's why Paul says in verse 19 that the creation eagerly longs for the revealing of the sons of God. Eagerly longing for the revealing of the sons of God. In other words, what the creation is itself is, 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 is waiting in expectation for, in anticipation for, is for the return of Christ and for Christ's people to be revealed in their new glorified and resurrected state. Because the creation itself knows that at that particular point in time, it too will be renewed and restored. 
And so Paul says, For the creation then waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God because at that point it itself will be released, it will be freed from this, this, this bondage to corruption and decay. The picture that's, that, 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 that comes through here is is the, uh, this wonderful picture of, of the creation in, in, in personified. You know, Paul is personifying creation here and he's saying the creation itself is kind of like standing up on its tiptoes, kind of craning its neck, waiting, looking in anticipation for this particular point to come in, in history, the culmination of all of history. You know, you look at people who are you know, on the news, for instance, you know, when the, the royals go walkabout and that sort of stuff, or they're going to come and visit a place, and all the crowds line up, you know, for hours and hours beforehand, and they've got all the fences and all the police and everything there, and, and someone says, oh, they're coming, they're coming, and everyone sort of all of a sudden starts looking and sort of, you know, wait. That's what the creation is, is, is currently doing. In the midst of all of the, the hardship and the decay of creation, it, the creation itself is longing for our revealing as sons of God. The future of the creation is intricately connected to that of mankind. It was subjected to the curse because of mankind's sin and it will be restored to its original pristine condition where, and that's be brought out of bondage when Christ returns and we are given these new bodies. But in the meantime, it groans. It groans with labour pains as it looks forward to the coming new order. Jesus spoke about that, that groaning, if you like, in, um, in Matthew 24, where he speaks about the fact that you know, he's asked, you know, when, when is your kingdom going to come, Lord? You know, and Jesus sort of gives this, uh, this, this, this series of teaching and he speaks about the fact that you know, creation itself is, 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 is groaning. It's in these labour pains. And Jesus says that there'll be wars and rumours of wars and earthquakes and all these sorts of things. But Jesus says, but that's not the end, that's just the beginning. So when we look around at our, at our fallen, corrupted world today, it should remind us of the hope that is ours in Jesus Christ. And it should remind us of God's purposes. That God is still sovereign, that God is still in control of our world today, as fallen and as broken as it is, God's purposes are being worked out. And that should give us confidence. That should give us hope. That should give us encouragement. To know that despite what we see with our, with our human eyes, there is a bigger picture that is being played out behind the scenes. And it is God's picture and God's plan. Well, there is the eager longing of the creation. Next is the eager longing of the believer in verses 23 to 25. In many ways, this passage depicts the, the now and the not yet aspect of our salvation in Jesus Christ. We're caught up in this tension, if you like, of between what God has already done in saving us through Jesus Christ, in the fact that he's given us this new standing, the fact that we've been declared righteous in Jesus before God, that we, have fe- we don't need to fear any condemnation from God anymore. So he's given us this new standing, he's given us this new nature, 
And he's given us this new spiritual power through the indwelling Holy Spirit to live as his people. That's what God has done, but, but there is a future aspect to our salvation where we'll experience the fullness of it when Jesus will finally come and return and, as I said, will we receive these new bodies. And so this eager longing on the part of the believer is from the desire to finally be set free from this present state. As people living in this world today, we can become so enamoured with the world that we forget about the hope that is ours in Jesus Christ. That instead the world becomes the object of our desires. The world becomes the object of our hope. The world becomes that which we strive after and vie for. And folks, when the world becomes our focus, when the world becomes the the desire of our hearts, then we will constantly be let down. Because the world itself is in a state of decay. It's in a state of brokenness. And so we're longing for for something which is ultimately broken and which cannot give us the satisfaction and the purpose and the meaning in our lives that we so desperately search after. Instead, we need to be people who see the world for what it is and we desire, we long for something much, much better. The Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 5 says this. He says, For we know that if the tent that is our our earthly body, our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, but eternal in the heavens. For in this tent, in this body, we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling. If indeed by putting it on, we may not be found naked. For while we are still in this tent, we groan, being burdened, not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. He who has prepared us for this very thing is God who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. Do you long to be set free from the things of this world? Hope of every Christian here in this place today. In fact, that should be the real longing and the real eagerness of our hearts is to finally be set free from this existence. To be set free from from sin and, and from death and from corruption and from all of the sufferings and from all of the hardships that we have to endure in our lives. Now that's not to say that we take matters into our own hands. Because we are ultimately God's people. 
And God is the one who directs our paths and he knows our end from our, from our beginning. It is God himself who determines the steps of our, of our lives and the length of our lives. And so when it comes to things like euthanasia, for instance, where you know people want to take matters into their own hands because they're so sick and tired of the sufferings of this life, God says, that's not on. And folks, this is going to be a huge debate in our society this year. You know, the same-sex marriage, and that, and that, that's, now been, that's now in the past, and yet there's some stuff still to, to come out of that. But one of the biggest things that's going to be debated in our culture this, this year and in these, these months ahead is going to be this whole aspect of euthanasia. As Christians, we have a great and wonderful hope. And we need to long for that hope that is ours. But we need to be trusting God in the meantime for what we have to endure. And Paul's going to talk about this a little bit more in this passage in a minute. This is the hope in which we were saved. That is that our salvation would one day result in us being glorified. That is God's ultimate purpose for us. We see that at the end of the passage where, it's, where Paul speaks about the fact that, the, that those whom God foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son in order that, we, that he, that is Jesus, might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. That is God's purpose. He has got, had a purpose that is being worked out from eternity past to eternity future. And that purpose is for each and every one of us to be conformed to the image of his son Jesus, to be like Christ. And God is going to be using all of the things of this present life, all of the circumstances and situations and that sort of thing, to actually help to mould us and to shape us more and more into the image of Jesus. And that's why we can't take things into our own hands because God wants to use your present circumstances as hard and as difficult as they may be in order to shine his glory in you and through you to the world around about us. And that's why it prompted the Apostle Paul to state to the, to, to the Christians in Philippi where he says, For me to live is Christ, but to die is gain. For me to live is Christ. In other words, for me to live is to, is to live a life that actually glorifies Christ, that is dependent upon Christ. But when this life is over, boy, that will be to my gain. This hope that we have is not some wishful thinking. It is guaranteed to us by the Holy Spirit, the sealed Holy Spirit. Paul speaks here of the first fruits of the Spirit. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning, and not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. Paul says here, the Holy Spirit is God's guarantee that this is going to happen for us one day. 
Paul speaks of having, having the, the spirit as the first fruits. It's a farming analogy that point Paul uses. And for the people in his, in his particular culture of that day, they knew that when it came to harvesting a field, they would, they would do an initial harvest. And that was the harvest of what was called the harvest of first fruits. And that was the, the initial reaping. And that reaping actually guaranteed the rest of the, that the harvest would, would come. It's interesting that this particular um, first fruits was also a feast that was celebrated in Jewish culture and it was called the Feast of Pentecost. And we know that at Pentecost, that was the first coming of the Holy Spirit, wasn't it? And so we can see how Paul ties it all together and that the Holy Spirit, you know, the, the, the first coming of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost was God's down payment, if you like, of all that would come after of all the people who would be saved in Jesus Christ. And that same Holy Spirit, God has placed in us as his children when we come to a saving faith in Jesus. And God says that now that Holy Spirit is a deposit, is my deposit, is my seal, is my guarantee to you that what I have promised you, I will bring to completion. says that which he has promised he will complete and the Holy Spirit is your guarantee of that but you know it's his very presence of the Holy Spirit that also causes us to groan because he is our constant reminder of the incompleteness of our salvation as the Spirit ministers to us as the the Holy Spirit speaks to our hearts the Holy Spirit reminds us that we're not what we're not now what we should be and so it's the, the ministry of the Spirit too that can cause us to groan to help us to see the extent of our fallen nature which hinders us from behaving as we should as the children of God. Yet it is this same spirit who enables us to wait patiently knowing that God will do what he says. The Holy Spirit is our deposit. The Holy Spirit also is the one who intercedes on our behalf before God. Now, prior to his death and his resurrection, Jesus says to his, to, said to his disciples that he would send the Holy Spirit, whom he referred to as the Helper. We see that in John chapter 14 and John 16. Jesus says, you know, I'm going to go away from you, but, but don't fret, don't be, don't be discouraged, don't, don't worry about that because I'm going to send you another. I'm going to send you the Holy Spirit. You know, Jesus could only be in one place at one time. Because he was limited to a physical body. And he could only be with, you know, with, with his, his disciples in that kind of physical state. But Jesus says, I want to give you something better. I don't want you just to sort of be, you know, in my physical presence, but I actually want to indwell you in your bodies. I want to be closer to you than you've ever known. And so Jesus says, I'm going to send you the Holy Spirit as a helper. And here in verse 26, Paul says that the Holy Spirit helps us in our weaknesses. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weaknesses. God has not left us alone here in this world. He's present with each and every one of us and he's present with us every minute of every day. 
And it is this same spirit that searches our hearts and our minds. He is closer than a brother because he lives within us. Of course, the natural condition of our weaknesses, our physical weaknesses today, cause us to pray, don't they? They cause us to pray. And that's the right response. Paul knows that we are fallible human beings. And we do not pray for we do not pray as we ought. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weaknesses, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought. But the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. Folks, God in his wisdom and his, and his, his amazing love for us has given us not only Christ who actually stands before the throne of God and who intercedes on our behalf in terms of our salvation, but God also has given us the Holy Spirit who himself intercedes for us before God with words that are just too deep for, for, for expression. Have you ever ever found times in your life where you just want to pray but you just don't know what to pray for? You just don't have the words that adequately express how you're feeling and what what those yearnings are for in your heart? Have you ever had those times? Well, it's at those times that Paul says here that the Holy Spirit takes those feelings, those words, those groanings that are too inexpressible for words and presents them to God in in, in light of the will of God and God hears that. Isn't that amazing God who does that for us? That even in our weaknesses and our failings, when we, when we ourselves, we don't, even, we don't even know how to pray, we don't know what words we should pray, God says, it's okay, just rest in me and trust in the Holy Spirit who will indeed pray on your behalf to me. And God will hear those prayers. What an amazing God. There's also the fact that um, when it comes to our praying, we may often think that we know what we need, but we're not necessarily good judges of that, especially in relation for what God wants for us. Remember Paul's thorn in the flesh? Paul wanted it removed, but God had different purposes for that. So God didn't answer that prayer the way Paul had hoped he'd answer it, but, but did God not answer that prayer? Of course he answered that prayer. But he said, Paul, this is my answer. My grace is sufficient for you. Our perspective is always limited and we don't always know what's best. And ultimately the Holy Spirit is concerned with our sanctification. That is making us more like Jesus. And because of our sinful nature, our concern is often on that which will make us feel more comfortable in our lives. But the Holy Spirit and God has a higher purpose. And so we need the Holy Spirit to come to our aid in prayer and to teach us what to pray for in light of God's will and purposes for us. And for us to surrender to that.
There is the good and perfect purposes of God. The fact that we can surrender to God, Spirit's leading in terms of how we pray and what's best for us. We can do that because we know that God promises that for those who love Jesus, who have been called according to the purposes of God, then God works everything together for good. Every aspect of our lives, no matter how easy, no matter how wonderful, or no matter how difficult it is, we can have the confident assurance that for those who love Jesus, who have been called to the plans and purposes of God, God is using all of these things to work together for good, for his good and for ours. Paul can confidently state that everything about our lives is safely in God's hands. Please, when it comes to verse 28 of Romans 8, please do not just say, and we know that God works all things together for good. You cannot just leave it at that. God only works all things together for good for those who love Jesus and have been called according to his purposes. Our present sufferings are used by God for this very purpose, to refine us, to strengthen us, to strengthen our faith, to develop our patience and to develop our endurance. And God does it with the ultimate purpose in mind of bringing us to glory, bringing you and me to glory. We may not fully understand our afflictions. We may not be able to pray about them intelligently, but we can know with absolute and complete certainty that every trial, that every tear is a part of God's eternal purposes for good. Pain, disappointment, heartache, Tears, these things are unavoidable in our world today. But for the child of God, we can take great hope and great comfort in knowing that through suffering, eventually God will bring about glory. That was the path of our Saviour Jesus Christ who himself trod the path of suffering which would ultimately end up in his glory and ours. And if we are to be disciples of Jesus Christ, if we are to be little Jesuses, so to speak, then surely we ourselves should expect that we will have to tread that same path that he did that we will have to tread that path of suffering, but ultimately God will bring about our glory. The two go hand in hand, folks. So as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, 17-18, let, let this be our words today. For this light momentary affliction 
is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen but to the things that are unseen. There's the key. That we don't look to the things that are seen but we can consistently keep our eyes focused on that which is unseen because the things that are seen are transient. They're here today and gone tomorrow but the things that are unseen are eternal. They are forever and ever and ever. So let's keep our eyes fixed on that unseen hope, shall we? As we start this new year, let us be determined as followers of Jesus to do that, to keep our eyes fixed on that unseen hope and know that God is leading us on the path from groanings through to glory. Amen? Amen. Amen. Stewards, if you'd like to come forward, we're going to share around the communion table.